Well, I have to say thank you once again for listening to Redefining Family. This is your host, Jonathan Wilson. And it's funny because the guy who I interview in this particular podcast also is named Jonathan. And I had the opportunity actually to go to his book signing after we actually did our recording. And he had a really fun take on coming on his coming out story and, and sharing that with people and sharing it from their perspective and the and the second person. And he has this book called Dear Queer Self. I just wanted to say that uh, he's just a wonderful guy. At the same time, I also wanted to expand a little bit upon my cousin that I talked about last week. And and some of you sent me a note or, you know, reached out to me about it. It's interesting because there's a little bit more to it where he had always been in my mom's life. He was like my mom's, one of my mom's like best friends. I mean, they were, they were definitely in the trenches together when it came down to who knows if it was getting in trouble or whatever, but I can only imagine. I mean, they were in their twenties and thirties together. So <laughs> you can kind of take that for what it's worth, right? So not like my mom would ever really tell me, but, um, it's definitely interesting too, because when I was growing up, my, you know, my, my father was not a big fan of his and the influence he could have on me as a kid. And so maybe that was my dad kind of recognizing that maybe I might have been gay or, you know, maybe he was like, okay, let's keep anything gay away from Jonathan because that might actually put him, tip him over the fence. So I don't know what the reasoning was, but at the end of the day, he definitely was very much kind of in my mom's life, but my dad had to kind of suck it up, but he was not a fan. He definitely made a lot of comments about him as well. So that was something that definitely, you know, that was my mom's cousin, Michael. He was a good guy. May he rest in peace. So anyways, let's go over to the bio. And, you know, <laughs> at first I used to actually <laughs> write out my intros. And now I kind of just kind of go off the cuff and I just enjoy it. So anyways, let's go into Jonathan Alexander. I'm excited. So <laughs> this will be a fun episode. Talk to you guys soon. All right. Bye. Wow. So our next guest is Jonathan Alexander. Jonathan Alexander is a writer living in Southern California, Orange County to be exact, where he is Chancellor's Professor of English at the University of California, Irvine. He is the author, co-author, or co-editor of 21 books. That's a lot of books, by the way. His cultural <laughs> journalism has been widely published, especially in the Los Angeles Review of Books, LARB to be exact, for which he is the special Projects editor. He's also the host of LARB's Writing Sex. Ooh, interesting. A YouTube series of short interviews with contemporary writers on sex and sexuality. Previous guests include Garth Greenwell, Andre Ackerman, and Dennis Cooper. LARB founding editor Tom Lutz has called Alexander one of our finest essayists. He lives with his husband and cat, and when not writing, dabbles in watercolors, and plays piano in a music ensemble with friends. For more about Jonathan Alexander and his books, please visit www.thecreeptrilogy.com and www.v-blank-page.com. Wow, I mean, that's quite the bio there. I'm always intrigued by 
how people choose to describe themselves and, and what they choose to emphasize. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. And, and can I just ask you a question to start? You can ask me a lot of questions. It's good. <laughs> is, it, is it weird? Do you ever find it's weird to talk to somebody who has the same first name as you? Yeah, you're right. Let's, let's like talk about the elephant in the room. We have the same first name. We do. And it's weird to talk about. I feel like I'm talking about myself in third person. <laughs> when in reality, I know there's another Jonathan out there. That's but yes, right. Thank you for saying that. No, no, no worries. <laughs> now, now that we got that out of the way. Uh, okay. Good. Just just had to put that out there. <laughs> Jonathan likes. I feel like, you know, do you ever watch Seinfeld, by the way? You know, I, for some reason I missed it. I know all I know about it, but I, I, I was not a connoisseur. So or there's one episode where. Elaine meets this guy named Jerry mm. and Jerry likes to talk about himself in the third person. Uh, he says, Jerry likes to go to the gym. Jerry likes X, Y, Z. Right. So <laughs> when I say Jonathan out loud to other people, it sounds like I'm talking about myself in the third person. Anyways, it's <laughs> always a fun reference. So tell me a little bit about, so I, I'm so, I mean, there's so much to unpack. <laughs> because I also know a little bit more about your background that is different from what the bio I read. So I'm actually just very curious about you in general. Let's just hear about your upbringing. You know, when did you realize that you were gay? What was it like? I mean, you grew up, tell the audience a little bit more around where you grew up, by the way. And then in context, maybe tell me about your childhood. Sure. Wow. So I grew up in South Louisiana. I actually was born in New Orleans and spent most of my youth up until I was 25 in Louisiana, in the Deep South. Uh, <laughs> I finished all of my education at Louisiana State University. I actually received a PhD there in literature. They were very friendly to gays, right? In the 70s, 80s? Well, yeah. I was going to say, you know, you, you sort of got right to, the, right to the core of the matter for me because I just spent the last several years writing a a set of memoirs about growing up. Oh, memoirs called, three of them together called The Creep Trilogy. And those are books specifically about the experience of intense homophobia growing mm. up in the Deep South in the in the 70s and 80s. I left, finally was able to leave Louisiana when I finished my PhD in 1993. And, you know, couldn't couldn't wait to get out for a variety of reasons, you know many to do very specifically with me personally and the kind of homophobia that I encountered in through Catholic church, through the Baptist church, through even unfortunately at times via family, friends, community, schooling, etc. It well, was Tell us about that. What was it what were some of the things that you experienced, you know, via the Catholic church because I feel like this this is really more for expressing to people that we're not alone, right? And that people that may be depressed, maybe on the verge of suicide, we don't know what people are going through, but they're feeling some sort of way. And I would love for others to understand, like, we've all been through this pain. So you asked the question first, you know, when did I first know I was, I was gay? It's a complicated question for me for, for a variety of reasons, but I first knew very, very early on that I, that I wasn't, I wasn't a normal boy. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't like all of the other boys in my, in my class. I mean, when I was in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, I don't know that I could have articulated any 
particular sexual desire at that point. But I was bookish, nerdish, weird, cross-eyed already, even before I think kids knew. You were cross-eyed back in the day, huh? I'm cross-eyed now. I think I just hide it better. <laughs> Absolutely, because I'm looking at you right now, and I, I would never think that. Oh, I was a, I was a strange little kid in a lot of ways. And even before any of us had hit puberty and understood what being gay meant, you know how kids are, you know, it was fag this, faggot that, queer, sissy, homo, et cetera, et cetera. And as I got older, started going through puberty, et cetera, that it just became very clear. I, I was one of those, I was one of those queer kids who could not hide. I could not hide my queerness. I, I was a little thinny at times. I had a lisp. You know, I was, I was kind of a sissy boy. I was not not athletic. Uh, I played the piano. Uh, it, was, it was a problem in a very misogynistic and homophobic culture. Okay. Mozart also played the piano. Just, just putting it out there. Just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. I think the, the even more troubling thing was that not only did I face a kind of homophobic bullying from peers, but also a lot of what I would call officially sanctioned homophobia. I went to Catholic schools, started going when I was an adolescent to a Southern Baptist church. And between the Catholics and the Baptist, I was pretty constantly reminded that homosexuality is sinful. And wow, I turned 16, 17, 18 at the height of the AIDS, at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, rather. And I hear from not only the pulpit, not only from the priests, but from family members as well, that AIDS is God's just punishment for homosexuality. So it was... And then they realized there's a lot of closeted guys who are still getting HIV. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a pretty toxic environment in that regard. And I'm just talking about the things that I personally experienced directly. I mean, I think it's taken me some time also as a white person to realize how very racist the area was as well. You know, like when you sometimes when you grow up in that area, you just you don't realize the extent to which racism is so pervasive. Mm-hmm. And you grow up wondering, well, wait a minute, why do I why do I only know white people? Isn't this a pretty racially mixed? I mean, New Orleans, that area, 50-50. You know, why do I only know certain kinds of people? So I've actually come also to think of that as another form of abuse, right? As yeah. sort of the one of the one of the abusive elements for children of living in a in not just a homophobic but a racist society is that we're kept from each other in a lot of ways. So a lot to think about there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just listening now. So was able to get to get to college. I was very excited. I, I left home, went to LSU, which is about hour, hour and a half north of northwest of Louisiana, of uh, Louisiana, of uh, New Orleans, that is. Yep. And I was 17 going on 18. And I was so eager. It was 1985. I was so eager to to get out and and explore what it might mean to live a little differently, be a, be a little different in the world. I didn't identify at that point as as gay, but I knew I had these these feelings, had some real interest in 
exploring what intimacy with another young man might be. But, you know, here it is. It's 1985, Jonathan. What do you see on TV? You know, Rock Hudson dying of AIDS. And I definitely feel like I'm part of that generation that whose whole sexual awakening in many ways was marked by AIDS. It's like yep. we, we, we couldn't not think about sex and AIDS at the exact same time. So I eventually did find myself as a senior in college making out with a boy. And yep. we had a tortured little relationship. I'll never forget the very first time. Here I am mildly intoxicated. And I kiss a boy. I'd, I'd kissed girls before that. I kissed uh, a boy and I liked it. Kissed a boy. <laughs> the way I would put it is I kissed a boy and, oh, stubble. I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when you kiss girls, there's usually not oh, a stubble. No. You, know, you, you kiss a boy and you think, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting. I kind of like it. <laughs> that's true. So, but you know, that, that relationship did not last long. I think it was really difficult for us. You know, we didn't have gay role models. We didn't have, I never had a teacher who was openly gay. We had teachers we suspected might be gay, but you know, this was just, this was not a a time. This is not a place in which you had really, I mean, television. I mean, come on, you know, kid, I almost want to say kids these days. (laughs) Say it again. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's pretty Jack. Oh my god. I mean, come on. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was pretty good. I'm just kidding. That was yeah. that had that had its moments. Uh-huh. So, uh, but <laughs> you know, just a very very different different time. And so part of what's interesting about my story to me at least is that it just wasn't working for me. I I tried to come out on campus, never could have let my my parents know. Tried to come out on campus and it just wasn't working. There wasn't this kind of support. I I couldn't find a community. I I remember it was sometimes sitting around with a couple of other gay people and you know trying to figure out, you know, how do I how do I manage this? But you know, so here here's here's a little we're going to spill a little tea about about our community here. Uh-oh. At that yeah, at that time, I've never considered myself a particularly handsome individual. I was just a really shockingly nerdy looking kid. So even sometimes the other gay people that I would meet, it didn't, I, mean, I, I wasn't cute. <laughs> I wasn't an attractive kid. I, say, so. I love nerds personally. <laughs> I do too. I, I, I'm a big fan of the nerd, but I, I just wasn't finding, I wasn't finding those, those gay folk. So it just didn't didn't make for a lot of pleasant interaction, unfortunately. So I did what is perhaps not that uncommon for a lot of people in this situation, where I'm not finding those role models, I'm not finding a community, I'm not I'm not fitting in, but I'm also admittedly dealing with a lot of my own internalized homophobia, of course, you know, a lot of my own shame. And, you know, I, t- I turned to the people who actually were talking to me, who were interested, mostly young women. And when I was in grad school, I fell in love with one of them. Young woman who I had a lot in common with, who, like me, was felt that she was something of an outsider, wanted a different kind of life. And we actually got married and helped each other get out of Louisiana and move to Colorado together. And... That marriage lasted maybe about three years because both of us decided that while we loved each other, 
and we were enjoying each other's company that there were both that both of us had other kinds of relationships that we needed to foster for our, our own personal happiness for our own well-being and our own growth as people and it was it Can was I ask different. You, were you fully were you fully functioning straight guy <laughs> If I never, you know, I never identified, I never identified as straight. Interesting. Even, even my girlfriend before she became my fiance and my wife, we worked in a Mexican restaurant together on the weekend. So we'd, we'd go home. We were each, we were both in graduate school and we would, you know, go home on the weekends and work in this Mexican restaurant. And we both had a crush on the same guy essentially he <laughs> really didn't want to have much to do with me but that's okay it's, it's funny. <laughs> he, he was he was still adorable and 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 handsome and there were some some fumbling attempts to to do stuff that wasn't wasn't quite working out Bring him in the room with you <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting i actually really did enjoy our sexual activity i i enjoyed sex with with my wife that wasn't that wasn't a deal breaker, as it were, at all. And so it's been interesting. I actually have found myself sometimes sitting with a other gay man, less less as time goes on. But I remember sitting and telling the story, and it's like, oh God, how could you have stood the sex? Oh my God, gays don't like fish. And it's like, oh please, really. <laughs> And we just turned down the 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 sex phobia here. It's really it's a little misogynistic as well, you yeah. know, to to talk about to talk about people like that, talk about women like that. So for a while, identified as bisexual, never really as straight. Identified for a while as bisexual, and to this day, I have very very close female friendships. I have, I am not erotically intimate with any of my female friends. But, you know, Jonathan, I would say those are still very, very intimate relationships. And they're even physical in a way. You know, I mean, I was just visiting with one of my dearest, dearest long-term friends, the woman who actually introduced the guy to me who would become my husband. So I was out in Colorado visiting with her. And, you know, we slept in the same bed together. And we'd walk down the street holding hands. And so, I don't know, maybe that's just sort of heterosexual slumming. I, about <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel like I sleep in the same bed as my best friend sometimes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. she's married with two kids. So, like, yeah. I, so I mean, I don't feel like there's any kind of sexual thing no, there. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not. It's not sexual, but it is a very intimate, and I I don't want to. And part of you know an intimacy of that feels very familial to me. Feels very much like family in a lot of ways. But after I divorced, and my wife and I went our separate ways. I started dating pretty much exclusively guys and feel immensely fortunate that at that point in my life, by this point, I'm in my late twenties. I have such significantly better, much healthier relationships with people, with, with men start to really enjoy myself, start to address some of my own internalized homophobia. And I actually credit my relationship with a, with a woman, with my ex-wife, for actually helping me come to accept myself in a lot of ways. There's so many other things like about that. Like, it's just, I mean, in your story is kind of embedded the, the thought that a lot of gay people have, or gay men have, which is like the self-loathing part, right? And it wasn't, it was, it's not just around the sexuality, but just how you felt about your own self and in your insecurities. 
And that's not something, you know, how did, did you ever address that? How did you address that? Right. Because it's more than just a sexuality. Like, you know, for you, you didn't feel attractive. Right. 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 Absolutely. You know, I think those are things that if enough damage is done to you, I think you address those things pretty much all the time. I don't think that I'm over addressing them at times. Yep. I think that I continue to to deal with some of that internalized, you know, I, I call it less and less homophobia, but it's a kind of self-hatred, right? It's a kind of shame. Yeah, of course. Because it's bigger I, than just homophobia, right? It's, it's just, bigger than homophobia. It's, it's you. Right. Yeah. But, I also, right. but it's funny because I always say things don't happen to you. They happen for you. Mm-hmm. And the reason they happen for you is because it makes you a better person or it helps you at least think about things differently from a different lens, right? right. So there are a lot of things that are awful that happen for us, <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, even the Buddhists sometimes say that you're your worst enemies are sometimes your greatest teachers. And I, I agree I, with that. That's yeah, so funny. I, I think it's, yeah, I think I, it's, I it's, that. it's painful. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah. And I was determined not to let these experiences mark the contour and the shape of my life and deny me of surviving myself, <laughs> surviving yeah. my situation. But it's interesting because as I've, been writing through these these memoirs, which which very much deal with the first one is called Creep, and it very much deals with how I felt creepy as a kid and 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 how I grew up as a young young queer kid, feeling you know very very creepy because that's how a that's how a homophobic culture invites you to feel you know you're invited to feel like there's something pathological about you something wrong and twisted, and then the second book I wrote called Bullied deals much more specifically with the sort of structures of homophobia. How is homophobia vectored through religious dogma? How during the AIDS crisis was Ronald Reagan's refusal to talk about AIDS itself a government-sanctioned homophobia? Things of that nature. And in this in this final book, which just came out in March of 2022, called Dear Queer Self, I write it as a letter to myself, to my younger self. And at first I thought, wow, this is going to be like an it gets better narrative, right? You know, it's like, oh, hang in there, kid. It's it's going to be all fine. <laughs> and I realized that as I was writing it, it's like, well, I don't know that it always gets better. I mean, is that I think- funny? I totally say that all the time. Remember the it's get better campaign? I love the content. I do. I, do. I loved it. That was probably life saving. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yet, <laughs> you know, does, does it really get better? I don't know. It gets more interesting. I like to say the money is better. <laughs> I'd rather have my well, currency. Find better ways of, I think you find better ways of coping. You do. With you do. Right? That's right. You absolutely do. And I think the thing we need to keep in mind is like, it's always on the verge of potentially getting way worse. You know, we live in a 100%. really crazy, crazy environment right now. And with everything going on, especially all of the hate against trans folk, kind of the resurgent misogyny, not to get the... Oh. You know, Vasive racism. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so disgusted with like where we are as a society at this exact moment because Roe v. Wade, the decision from the Supreme Court hasn't come out yet, but that draft was awful. <laughs> all of it, all of it. You know, it gets better. <laughs> we'll see. But 
so instead of instead of finding myself writing an it gets better narrative, what I what I found myself doing was saying, "Wow, I wish I knew this kid. <laughs> I wish I knew this this young kid I was." Because despite the fact that he struggled, despite the fact that he things were difficult, despite the fact that that he you know he he endured a lot, he was often very very creative, and he was something of a survivor. And not only did he he kind of make it at least to this point, but there was. There's something I just began to admire about myself. And I found that more, more important than communicating the idea that it gets better. It's like, no, what instead of it gets better, what I realized is it's like I, I love myself. <laughs> I loved this kid that I was. I love, and, I love, I love my inner child. Yeah. Yeah. And that's How do you love your inner child. That's like that's like a therapist dream that you really love, love yeah. your inner child. Yeah. And <laughs> You know, I mean, I can even sort of feel, you know, that, that funny feeling you have in the back of your head. It's like, oh, I think I'm going to cry about this. But but I have that that feeling of it's like, wow, I love this kid now, a kid who is so full of self-hatred. And I love him and I wish I could hold him. So I think as an older individual, we realize that everybody else felt the same way. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's like, wait a minute here. I wasn't alone the whole time I thought I was alone. (laughs) And like, I look at my younger self and I'm like thinking, wow, like I, I thought I was the only one who felt this way and I wasn't. I think it's interesting. What if you had another book and it came out and it became like your eulogy and then you could actually think about your future. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's good. I think about I do think about, you know, what are the sorts of things that we could have that I could have done or could have done differently, paths, other paths I could have taken. And so one thing that I actually do think about was what if I had not gotten divorced? Mm. What would that life have been like? Would also- I would both <laughs> of us have been able to engage or develop construct a polyamorous relationship where we also were engaging sexually, intimately, romantically, other kinds of people, not just each other. And I think about that. I don't think that either one of us had the imaginative capacity or the emotional maturity in order to to engage in any kind of polyamory. But I absolutely the- getting I absolutely get hit on by straight couples on Tinder. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's intriguing, and like, how how do you navigate that? How do you how do you work that out? So, and it and it really it gets in a lot of ways to you know it's like when you're when you're a lot older and you've been through a lot, you know you have a couple of couple of options. You can sort of seize up and get all weird and and interior and and hateful of everything around you, or you can just like, you know, we're all doing the best we can to, to find, to find a way to survive this craziness. And the last thing I want to do is sort of withhold affection from people I care about. Right. And I like to think I'm in that space and it's allowed me in my mid fifties now to sort of create a sort of family dynamic with some of my closest friends. Like I said, I've got this wonderful, wonderful dear friend who introduced me to the man who became my husband. She's my oldest friend. We call each other non-sexual life mates. And, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's, that's, yeah, yeah. She'll always be a part of, a part of my life. That's just how that is. And it's, 
it's been great to be able to go off periodically on a, and just spend a weekend with her and, and talk about hold hands and talk about our lives and, and continue to grow together. And, and so I am so grateful and, and I don't want to put our straight brothers, sisters, and NBs down, but I do think that there's a way in which this is easier for queer folk. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think we know how to do these things. I think we know how to navigate multiple complex relationships and that since so many of us so many of us have had to rely on the kindness of other people the support of other people many of them not family right many of them not we not have, by blood but not by blood not family by blood right we have learned that one person will not fulfill all of your needs 100%. and you might you might marry one person. You might even be monogamous with one person. Right. But you need other people. Right. And right. those other people, those are my family. I love that. No, that's great. How did you actually meet your husband, though? <laughs> so I was, I was teaching at a university in Colorado. And my non-sexual life mate, whose name yes. is Karen, she was also teaching at that at that school. We were the only two openly queer faculty. Interesting. That, which, was, which was kind of crazy. This is, would, would have been in the mid to late 90s. So the only... Oh, that's open- really... That's, that's, yeah. that's, oh, yeah. That's before people were really... That's really- before Ellen. That's before Ellen. You know? <laughs> before Ellen, yes. With that's the microphone I saying I'm gay. Before <laughs> Ellen. Yeah, yes. and, uh, and I remember we were all sitting around the TV. We had like a... We had the the LGBT student group that we, that we sponsored, you know, we had a little get together at home in 97 to watch that coming out episode. But so it was like 95, 96, 96 in particular, 97, you know, Karen and I were trying to pull this together and it was difficult, you know, walked into a bathroom one time and saw my name scrawled on a bathroom wall with the, with the command kill all fags. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that that was that's actually that a was, death threat. Did you? How was that received? I reported that to the police, you know, and they're yeah. like, "Oh, you know, kids will be kids." I'm like, "Really?" Said, oh God, it's awful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. So anyway, so I was giving a talk on campus, which was basically this would have been in 1996. This is basically my kind of coming out talk when I was going to talk very openly about my own experiences and. Karen invited one of her former students to come to the to the talk and he must have enjoyed it because he came up to me afterwards and started chatting me up and I have to admit I was just kind of not having it I was I was a little frosty and in fact I was I was so frosty that he and his friends developed a nickname for me the ice queen which I thought was was cute. I try to live up to that. To this day. <laughs> I don't think it was meant to be uh, cute, but yes, no, it wasn't meant to be cute. It was, it was definitely some shade, yeah. uh, proto shade for the little gay boys. But I think it was a little frosty because I actually was attracted to him, and I thought, wow, this is somebody I like. But I was like, you know, I was like, you need to kind of, you need to kind of go away for a little bit. Yeah, and more importantly, you need to, you need to graduate. <laughs> So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. a couple of years later, when we found ourselves working on a, a local nonprofit, the LGBT nonprofit in the area, we sort of struck up our own friendship and started dating. 
And yeah, the rest is history. And it will be 25 years this December that we have been together. 25 years. Wow. Most of that by seven. That's that's crazy in gay years. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, 20, 25 years, that's like three adulterous affairs, you know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a lot, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot in any years, you know, but, yeah. but maybe especially in gay years. Yeah. So. That's great. Now, do you guys, are you guys kids or no kids? Is that like way before? No kids, no kids. I, you know, I told myself when I was younger that, well, I never really wanted children. I, mm-hmm. I had what I call a biological anti-imperative. That yeah. like, yeah, I'm cutting this off. You know, this 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 bloodline does not need to go further. Uh, <laughs> and it took, me a long, it, it took me a long time to kind of think about whether or not that was another form of self-hatred, quite frankly. Yeah, of course. But I also thought, oh, you know, by the time I'm 40, if I'm if I'm feeling less selfish at 40, I'll think about having kids. So 40 came and went. And I think I only felt more selfish. I felt more like, oh, I'm having a good time. Why, why, would I want to, why would I want to mess that up? Which is a terrible thing to say because I, my, my colleagues and friends with kids obviously so enjoy the experience, but I never really found myself wanting them ultimately and am good with that. Instead, you know, I've spent next year will be my 30th year as a higher educator. And I've spent my entire adulthood caring for other people's children, you know, helping oh, them and that. teaching them. And that has been tremendously, tremendously satisfying. I was just having coffee with a, with a young gay man earlier this morning who wants to go off to be a writer. And, and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's this, this wonderful, wonderful young queer of color kid who just, who has so many interesting stories to tell. And I'm like, yeah, anything we can do, let's get you out there. Let's do it. And that to me feels Hear like your voice. <laughs> that's parenting enough. You know, yeah. that's, that's, that's good. Some of these young people become, become family as well. And I have been in a long-term intimate non-sexual relationship with a, with a former student, young man who's now in his mid thirties named David, who basically we have just sort of adopted into our household. You know, he doesn't live with us. He lives up the road from us, but he is part of our house. He's part of our family. And we regularly get together, have dinner, been on trips. It's just... Does he have a key to your place? (laughs) No, he does not have a key to our place. But I think that's probably only a matter of time, you know, and... uh, (laughs) And when the, you know, when the, when the door is not locked, he just comes, he just comes right in, you know, right. so I mean, he can easily get in the house. That is, that is it. not, a, not a problem, but you know, this is somebody who we've in a lot of ways helped, help to take care of and help foster his, his own career and his own life throughout his twenties. And, you know, that, that means a great deal to me. And just in terms of, feeling like, oh, I also have friends who are in their 70s. In fact, mm-hmm. my mother, who is our last remaining parent, moved in with us five years ago this week oh, wow. <laughs> and has lived with us. She's nearly 80 and she's lived with us the entire time. And so I feel, wow, I've, you know, how could this be any better? I have 
older friends, including a mother. I have my non-sexual life mates. I've got a younger friend who is like a surrogate son, is a intimate part of our family, and a husband of 25 years. So I love that you refer to your mom as a friend. That's that's like really sweet. Because, yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, it wasn't always the case. <laughs> it's not always the you know, case. Gabe, and that's why it's yeah, gay boys and their mothers. You know, that's an interesting thing. So. But I do think of my mother as a friend. And I think that that's what actually allows us to be able to live together. I don't think we could have done this 10 years ago. You know, I had a lot of I had a lot of difficulty with my mother. My mother was very resistant to my queerness for a long time. And it it that that took a while for us to to come to terms with. And How did you your mom? So I called her up and here I am probably about 29 or so, maybe almost 30. And Mac and I had been dating for a year or so. And and I wanted her to know, I mean, she knew that I was by that point, she knew I was queer. I mean, I had to explain my divorce. (laughs) So, and I started to tell her, I said, I want you to know, like I found somebody and we've been dating for, for a while. And, I'm going to want you to to meet him. And she said, stop. I don't want to hear about the evil in your life. Gasp. (laughs) That is awful. Yeah, it was. And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way because there's nothing about this that remotely seems evil to me. And, you know, the evil thing I think is to tell somebody else that how they find love with another consenting adult is wrong. That seems evil to me to tell somebody that that's wrong. So it took many years for us to, to work through this. But by that point, you know, Jonathan, I had, I had come to realize, wow, here I am in my very late twenties. It's taken me all of this time to get to a point where I feel Okay, I feel good about being queer. I needed to give her that time. You know, I just couldn't expect her all of a sudden to to accept it. That's uh, so interesting. I you know, I haven't thought about my mom's journey in the same in the same time frame as how long it took for me to accept my own self. And I think you're maybe you're right because I feel like my mom's only been more comfortable in, in the recent years, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And even like with talking about me having a child, like she's been like weird about it. And then all of a sudden she was like, Oh, this is great. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like what happened? Yeah. And she goes, Oh, I just, I just think you deserve to be happy. And I was like, yeah. where did this, where did this new you come from? Which <laughs> is a really weird change. Wow. I think that's exactly right. I think that what happens is that maybe, maybe one of the, fucked up things about having kids is that it's almost impossible not to have expectations for them, not to sort of give them your dreams. And so sometimes what we have to ask, and this is probably not just an issue for queer parents, I think it's, or or parents of queer kids, especially I think it is, but in, in general, I think if parents and kids are to navigate an adult relationship, if they are to become friends, it's because you both, both the kids and the parents, have to stop making the other fulfill their dreams. 
You know what I'm saying? I, I think that's amazing insight. You're kind of making me think about things a little bit differently. And I kind of appreciate that because I'm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thank so, you. So within the last, you know, 10 years, when I began to listen to my mother and hear her stories, especially after my dad died, my dad died in the evacuation from Katrina. Oh, um, sad. I'm sorry to so, hear that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really started listening to her stories. I started listening to her life and to hear about her life and the difficulties she had growing up. And it was at that point that I began to realize, wow, this is a, this is my mother. This is a complex, interesting, brilliant, fascinating woman on all on her own. Who's also been hurt in her life, right? Who's also been hurt. And who has had a, a profound and fascinating existence. Much of it has nothing to do with me. Yeah, <laughs> it's not about me. And that allowed me to begin to see, oh, she'll always be my mother, but she can also be my friend. Yep. And I, I stopped needing her. You know, and this is the other thing. I think I call this a queer adaptive advantage that if queers do it right, we grow up and we really learn to depend on ourselves and we really find our own strength. And that allowed me to say, you're always going to be my mother, mother, but I don't need you to mother me. I think that's a that's like a moment to reflect. I think finding our own strength, right? That is, that is so important. And let's just take that in. That's important. So I want to highlight it that. is. It is. I just I just taught this beautiful, beautiful book to my students last week by Kaysen Callender. It's a young adult fiction novel called mm-hmm. Felix Ever After. And it's, I totally recommend it to all of your listeners. Beautiful book. This is about a young African-American trans boy who's sort of grappling with his his gender identity and his sexuality and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how does, how does he make his way in the world. And he, you know, Callender really beautifully tells the story about how he encounters you know, not just racism, but transphobia, you know, and is dead named and, and is encountering all of these terrible issues and also encountering some some friction from from friends, even other queer people, right? You know, I mean, yeah. let's let's face it, you know, gays and lesbians can sometimes be pretty hard on trans folk. So oh, yeah. and they can be some of the most racist and transphobic people that are out there. Yes. White queer people can be racist. Gays and lesbians can be transphobic. You know, we, we've got our own shit to contend with. And Case and Calendar does a beautiful job sort of pulling all this together. But the book ultimately moves towards this moment where Felix is, you know, I'm I'm making it. I'm and yes, I always will want the love of my friends. I will always want understanding but I know that I can survive because I accept myself because yep. I'm good with myself yep. and, I, and I love and appreciate who it is that I'm becoming in the world. And you, you have to get to that point. In my particular case, I had to get to that point in order to be able to look at my mother as, yeah, you're a friend, not just a mother, you're a friend and therefore family in a different way. You may be my blood relation, but you're also now family. <laughs> yeah in a whole other way. Yeah. And that allows us to live together, you know, and we can take care of her. And, and part of the great joy of the last few years has been to be able to provide for her and to just know that we've been on this crazy journey together. That's been difficult and painful, but also full of laughter and bad jokes. I mean, my God. So 
you know how it goes. I feel like every decade on New Year's, it's like you need to like renew your membership with family. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know? you know, kind of. You know, <laughs> let's let's also let's also not pull too many punches here. I think both my husband and I have had to realize that there are also moments when you just say no to blood family. Exactly. I just it exactly blood is not you do not get renewed this year. Sorry. <laughs> blood is not thicker than water. And it reminds me, let me just tell you this real quick story. I don't know if you ever saw Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy, but there's this no, amazing oh, there's this, it's this wonderful, wonderful story about this um sort of drag performer, you know, gay yep. gay drag performer who has these relationships over a few decades and at the very very end of the film or play he uh, is talking to a lover who is having trouble kind of acknowledging his own gayness kind of acknowledging their relationship and the harvey firestein character just looks in looks him in the face and says i just threw my mother out of my house because she can't accept me do you think i'm going to expect anything less from you. And I think that that's, I saw that when I was 21 years of age, when I was not capable of articulating a gay or a queer identity. And I've never forgotten it. It was like the first lesson I really got. It's like, this is the standard. This is how it's going to be. You want this life. You want to be a well-adjusted, self-accepting, fabulous queer person this is the bar you have to be willing to say no even to the people whom you might love the most you got to say no if they can oh, i always say that like i can i can still love some of my blood relatives who are not family but yeah. it's better to love them from afar than to love them close <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah i just don't you know i am only getting older here like i said i'm in yeah. my mid-50s i just don't have the time it's a sign of self-respect to me yeah. I'm respecting myself enough to say, I wish you the best. I just don't have time for your energy. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah exactly. Good luck. That, if if you want to talk, my door is always open, but you keep your homophobia to yourself. I got to tell you, my door isn't always open. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you got to say, is that door door open for a long time? <laughs> but the door is open for the right people. <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. <laughs> oh my god. No, anybody can't just call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can call. I just don't pick up the phone. So <laughs> right. you can call anytime you want. <laughs> I, I, my ringer is never on, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I, I see like, oh yeah, I know that number. Click. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Click. <laughs> but yeah no i i appreciate it so like what you know what's your advice and i love that you wrote a letter to your younger self and maybe it's it's interesting for the audience and i mean i think for for me just i'm curious what would the message be to the kid that is like you in today's society what would be like three things you'd give them from advice oh okay three things three bits of advice to Queer kids in particular. Queer uh, kids, yeah. Um, I would say don't let anybody tell you that this is going to be easy, Mm. but also don't let anybody tell you it's not going to be worth it. Mm. There are going to be days when you think it's not worth it because it's that hard. You're going to catch some crap. 
you are going to encounter uh, that homophobia or that transphobia or that racism, that sexism, that ableism. You're going to, you're going to find that or it will find you. And the worst thing you can do is to think number one, that it should be easier because none of this is, we're none of us are promised that this is going to be easy, but by the same token, nobody should be able to convince you that it isn't worth it because your life is worth it. So even if it's difficult, it's worth it. Related to that, I would say the most important gift you can give yourself is the capacity to cultivate joy with people you love. Oh yeah. And that, and then you want that. that it's actually one of my themes for this year is joy. Yeah. Joy because God damn it. We deserve it. Yep. We deserve it. We deserve beautiful things. We yep. deserve pleasure. The world tries to take it away from people like us and our allies all the time. Why? Why would we let them? We deserve it. And taking that time and making those spaces to cultivate joy is a great gift you can give yourself and it, and it aids your self-acceptance and yep. your development as a, as, a, as a person, as a loving person. Yeah. The other thing I would say, maybe in a, in a slightly crankier mood, <laughs> <laughs> pay attention to your queer elders. Like when you're when you're young, you can feel like you're you're on your own. Like you, and sometimes you know you feel like you you know, you know everything. You know what's best. Your queer elders, your trans elders, may not have grown up in the same world, but that means that they can enlarge your world. They can make your world larger and bigger by giving you part of their experience. But also, and maybe even more importantly, they deserve and they need your respect. They really could use, I think our older queers, older trans folk. We need love. I think we need it. We need that love too. And like me, I'm older now. Too. Like, yes, yeah. I'm 45. Yeah. So you know, I'll, like, I'll just I'll own it. It's like I need it. You know? <laughs> I, I, I need that. I need that sometimes from, yes. from younger people. And True. yes, absolutely. You know, tell me when I'm wrong. Tell me yeah. when I don't get it. Tell me when I've missed something that I should be paying attention to. I yeah. want, but I want to know that. I want to know what is your world like. How are you experiencing the world and and how and how what can I offer you? How can how can I help? I was talking a, a few months ago with a, an amazing Latina lesbian, the delightful Miriam Gerba, who is a writer from Long Beach, and she was saying that when she was a younger lesbian, she kept she would seek out older older queer folk and say, "I want to learn from you. How can I be of service to you?" in exchange for you mentoring me, you just showing me, showing me how to be a surviving, fabulous queer person. And I love that question. How can I serve you? And I think that that's something that I would love for all of us in, in our queer and trans communities to cultivate is how we're serving one another. Yes. If we can't depend on one another, we're not going to make it because so few people else in the world are fighting for us. If we're not fighting for each other, then it's lost. So that's so what that's I what I'm believing. agree with all of that. I think your talk track is right. So I think you're a great order. I agree with uh, a lot of what you're saying. So thank you. I appreciate thank you that. For some of the lessons I learned. <laughs> so these are the things we have to offer people. And you yeah. know, I, and I hope I hope your straight listeners are benefiting from this as as well. 
as I like to say, some of my best friends are straight. And, uh, you know. <laughs> I was talking to someone today who's, you know, 24 and, and queer. And he said yeah. to me, he goes, straight guys just make me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. is that discrimination? <laughs> I'm like, you might need to work on that. <laughs> oh, it's not discrimination. <laughs> discrimination doesn't work like that, you know. I feel like I feel like if it were if someone said that in the opposite way, I feel like yeah, no, that's discrimination. You know, it's a straight person saying, "Oh, this gay person makes me uncomfortable." It's like, grow the fuck up, honey. Right, but I feel like that's something like we all need to like work on. If there's a group of people that make you feel uncomfortable, that yeah. needs that means you need to work on it. <laughs> absolutely you know and and usually what i think so when a straight person says oh this gay person makes me uncomfortable is like they're homophobic that's a straight yeah. person homophobic when a gay person says this straight person makes me feel uncomfortable then the odds are that that gay person is still dealing with some internalized homophobia that's why i said i'm like that was my thought process and that's why I said, I think you need to go to therapy and figure that out. There's yeah. room, there's stuff. But, you know, stuff but it can take some time. It takes some time to realize that, that if I'm uncomfortable around straight people, that's because I haven't, I mean, I not always. Sometimes we're uncomfortable around straight people because they're assholes, right? So, so that Sometimes happens. There are a lot of asshole, assholes entitled. But, you know, but we also need to consider the possibility, if I'm uncomfortable around a straight person, is that because I'm still grappling with some. Is some, it them or me? Yeah. It could be me, you know, maybe it's right. my self-acceptance. I mean, that's the older side of us, like, right? It's just like, no. I don't know. You always realize that in every situation, there's two people involved, at least. Right? <laughs> so, Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, well, I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah, I enjoy it. So look forward to uh, sharing this. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate All it right. so much, John. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Cheers. I love this. Bye. Do you just feel like there is no air left to breathe? Do you just wanna to be left outside the grave? It's all for sure. I didn't know. I wonder what it meant to be.